and we long for that day. I look forward to the day that we can hear the shepherd's eyewitness account of the night of Jesus' birth. These earthy men had a front row seat to the greatest choir that ever sang on this aching planet. And then hurrying from the darkened fields back to Bethlehem, they stood in wonder at the makeshift cradle of the long-awaited Messiah. The shepherds had only a faint idea of what they were truly witnessing that glorious night, but I suspect that their lives were forever changed. Jesus' birth has a way of doing that to a person. Notice verse 15 of Luke chapter 2, which we've just read. The angels went away from them into heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Notice that what has happened, historical event, which the Lord has made known to us, divine revelation. And then we see that again in verse 20. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and all that they had seen as it had been told them. So they saw the works of God and they heard the word of God. God does what he does because he is who he is. And so the works of God in nature and redemption history help us to know and to celebrate the God who is. So huddled in that smelly stable, the shepherds bask in the wonder of the God who works wonders, and we're coming to know him. And we come, no less significantly, this Christmas Eve day to consider the same life-transforming works of God. While today the shepherds know more than we do, we know far more than they did that night. The revelation that they received was more dramatic, but ours is more complete, and every bit is life-changing. As we, so to speak, and we even sung of that, stand at the manger, as we stand there and take in this revelation, God intends thereby to transform us that we would live lives of love for God and for one another. That is the effect of seeing the incarnate Christ. I draw this thesis from the Apostle John's second epistle. If you'd make your way there to 2 John, admittedly lifting these verses out of the larger context of the letter, but I'm striving to be faithful to the text and to the context as we see the life-transforming implications of the eternal Son taking on flesh to redeem his people. Second John is written there, verse 1, uh, by the elder to the elect lady. The elder is known to be the apostle John. He writes to the elect lady. This is a figurative reference to the local church to which he is writing, I believe, and that can be defended We won't take the time to do that here, but he writes to them as the elect lady. The word elect refers to God's choice before the foundation of the world to redeem his people. And the lady plays on that imagery of the bride of Christ. So he's writing to a local church. In fact, we don't have singular and plural you, 
Some parts of the country do. Those to the south, it's y'all. And those that grew up where I grew up, it's yous. We speak of that. I wish we could just adopt one or the other. There'd probably be a civil war. But if, if we could just do that, it would really help us. We, but sometimes it's nice to hide behind the you that we have in English that's neither singular nor plural. But the Greek laid it out. Every you is a plural or a singular, and the plurals through this letter, or the yous through this letter are plural, largely. It's not the case when he's speaking to the elect lady singular, but that's a figure of speech. Or when, verse 13, the children of your elect sister, your, is you, singular, because he's speaking to the church. But all through the letter, the yous are plural. So verse 12, though I have much to write to yous, You see what side I'm on. But you get the point. It is y'all. It's written to a church by John, taking this elder theme, this position of a spiritual leader. And in verses 4 through 6, God calls his people then to a life of love. We'll narrow in there. Verse 4, he says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. John apparently had opportunity to speak with some of the members of the church, likely visited him in Ephesus where tradition places him in the last years of his life before his exile and, and death. But he is probably in Ephesus. Think of Revelation chapters 2 through 3. He writes to these different churches in Asia Minor, in Turkey today, and likely where he ministered. And so some have apparently traveled or he's met them in some way, and some of these individuals have uh, made John rejoice. He reports the joy he found in the fidelity of these church members to the truth of God's word. They were walking in the truth. What does that mean? They were walking in the truth. That means they were living in obedience to God's revealed will in Scripture. They were thinking. They were acting. They were speaking. They were emoting in ways that showed they believed God's truth. And John was overjoyed to witness this. And so he speaks here a word of pastoral comfort and encouragement to them. I've rejoiced in those who are tracking in fidelity to God's revealed truth. He moves now to exhortation, verse 5. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have from the beginning, that we love one another. Dear lady, again, this bride of Christ to this church, they were well acquainted with this command to live a life of love for God and for others. Nothing new here, John admits. Yet it's, it's a vital implication of the gospel that all believers must and will continue in a life of love. If you've met Jesus, you know the life of love. You understand what it is and you're striving to live it out if you truly know the Lord. We were saved from sin by Christ in order, in part, to live a life of love. But what is love? Verse 6. This is love. That we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. I think John intends to be circular here in his reasoning, his manner. Love is keeping God's commandments, and his commandment, the, essential, the essence of it, is to love. 
I think that's the word it there at the end of verse 6, referring to love, to walk in love. Commandment, you see here, is singular, pointing to the ethic of love as a fundamental entailment of the gospel. And we find this throughout the New Testament. Think of John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Or 1 John 5, 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Mixed together there is the, is the obedience to God and the love for God and for others. In Romans 13, 8, Owe to no one any, anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We come to see Christ, and we live a life of love. If we do not live a life of love, then we've not seen Christ. We don't know who he is. This theme permeates the New Testament. Keeping God's commandments is love for God and always aligns our our lives to that love. This love, of course, starts not with us, but it starts with God. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. In the giving away of his life, we know what love is. It is here that it is defined. Or 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. So love always starts with God's love for us. Once we've received the love of God by faith, we will live a life of love in response. This is a good place for us to review. We looked at just a few weeks ago, but remember 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as we work through that book. Love is patient. It's kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And as we noted a few weeks ago, when we look at that text, it is epitomized in the life of Jesus. That's what you would say about him if you walked with him, if you knew him during his earthly ministry and the Christ that we know today. So as we see that Christ, it begins to reflect in our lives as we live a life of love. To live in love is to invest ourselves in the ultimate good of others. By this we know love that Christ laid down his life, that he gave his life away for us, love guards us then from gossip and lying and manipulation and anger and slander and pride and envy and jealousy and adultery and theft. Any action, word, attitude, or thought that is harmful, antagonistic, or thoughtless toward others. We are moving away from that type of life as we come to know Christ and walk in love. A life of love orients us then to live for others, putting them first in our interests and serving their needs at sacrificial cost to ourselves. Now I want to draw our attention, secondly here, to the next word in verse 7. For. We really need to underline that word. Take away the word for, 
or the Greek word could be translated, because, and we might conclude that John takes up an entirely different topic here. He's finished with that call to love now, and now we're moving to something else. But the word for directly links a life of love with the incarnation of Christ. For many deceivers have gone into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. The logic seems strange. Doesn't it strike you that way? Who says this? Live a life of love because some people deny the virgin birth. And you go, what would I miss there? Live a life of love because some people deny the virgin birth. What John sees is that Christ taking on flesh transforms the way one lives. So let's imagine that you were asked by a church or a boss or somebody to travel to a dangerous country, and you're given instructions that when you land at this city, there's great danger, and what you need to do is right away ignore all of the people trying to get at you and get a cab that takes you west. If you head west into the city, there's some safety there. It's a good place to be. There will be cab drivers, and there will be travel agents, and there will be people off the street who pressure you to go east. They're up to no good. They're deceiving you to go the wrong way, and there's a lot of danger there. So don't go east when you land. Here's your last words of instruction. Remember, travel west to safety for all sorts of people are going to pressure you to go east. If that helps us here, John is saying, remember to live a life of love, for many will point you away from it by denying Christ, by denying indeed his incarnation is the one word that he uses here. So this will happen negatively as false teachers deny the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. They sever our understanding of what love is. So avoid them. They are, says John, he's not playing around here, he says they're deceivers and antichrists. They have gone out into the world, probably means only they have gone gone out peddling their false doctrine. There may have been some knowledge of them by the churches that are in view here, but possibly just means they've gone out peddling their false doctrine. By denying Christ as God in the flesh, they directly oppose salvation's plan. They are anti-Christ. And they will seek to deceive you. Satan is the great deceiver. In the garden, he said, you will not die. God is not actually good. He does not have your best interest in view. You can be like God. The deceptive ways of the serpent are mirrored here in the deceptive ways of these false teachers who deny the truth that Christ took on flesh. But positively... Here we soak in it, take it in again this Christmas season. We positively affirm that the newborn cradled in a Bethlehem manger had 
perpetually subsisted in the very form of God from eternity past as the second person of the eternal triune God. Miraculously conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the eternal Son of God became flesh. The eternal Son did not lay aside his deity. The eternal Son did not invade Jesus at his baptism and then lift off right before he died, as some have taught. Jesus was one person, not two, with a human nature and a divine nature, retaining all of the attributes that accord with each nature. In taking on flesh, Christ became what he was not before, a man, while remaining all that he had ever been through eternity past, the second person of the triune Godhead. So said more eloquently, can we bring these two together? These, this stinky environment of a manger, these smelly shepherds, in all of their earthiness, standing, looking down on that manger, that makeshift cradle, And putting that together with the beauty of the Chalcedonian Creed, here's what they were looking at in all their earthiness. Our Lord Jesus Christ, perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a rational soul and body, co-essential with the Father according to the Godhead, co-substantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us, without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, to be acknowledged in two natures. Those natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same, Lord Jesus Christ. Speak that to the shepherds and they'd say, what are you talking about? They had sight and now have way more sight than they ever did. But here we are, striving to understand what they saw 2,000 years ago. Now, in John's day, there were false teachers that held that the material world was wholly inferior, that it was unredeemable, that it was in itself physically evil. Now, you see that philosophy, and it was very pervasive, from the Greek philosophers down to this age, and pretty much every pagan believed this. Do you see the problem with, then, the statement that God took on flesh? That he became holy man. So many in, of Christian falsehood would twist that to say, in some way, shape, or form, he wasn't really man. It's not really what was going on. But in the other false teachers, we're saying it's not possible. It's, in fact, blasphemous to say that God took on something inferior and became limited. You can't say that kind of thing. It's blasphemy. Well, indeed, taking on flesh is limiting to Jesus, according to the flesh. 
But these limitations did not affect his divine nature, nor are human limitations evil or sinful in themselves. Rather, Jesus became man, we know, in order to pay the just cost of human sin, which is physical death. That God as God from eternity past could not do, die. But Jesus took on flesh to live a sinless life in fulfillment of God's law, then died as our substitute to pay the penalty of our sin, to satisfy God's wrath against sin so that he could be just and the one who justifies sinners. Jesus died as the God-man to deliver us from God's wrath. The false teachers in that day were taking away the atonement that Christ achieved. And they were deceiving others to follow them. And John is saying, sever yourself from Christ in this way. You will sever yourself from a life of love. And we will talk further of the implications. But in our day, very few people have any problem with Jesus in human flesh. It's the divine part that's the problem. That Jesus lived and was a good teacher and I think probably a nice guy overall is the way many think of it, which is foolishness when you consider what he actually taught and said. I think that he was just a nice guy. But they don't have a problem with Jesus in the flesh. The problem that we face in our day is Jesus, who was eternally preexistent as the second person of the Godhead. This is foolishness to so many in our day. But whether denying his humanity or his deity, we must realize that the new life rejects such false teaching. It will reject such false teaching. Verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. I think what John means there is, I have taught you, you have been brought to Christ, the Savior, you have come to embrace who he is. Do not allow this to slip away by falling into false doctrine. Do not allow this to slip away and so take reward in eternity from your life as a Christian. That reward of Christ himself, verse 8, much is at stake. Notice verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Those who go on ahead is a reference to the false teachers who go off in their own direction. They put together philosophical ideas and impose them on the scriptures to go off in a direction that they want. It makes sense to them. And what's really encouraging is people follow me when I say these things. And so they construct false doctrine heading off in the wrong direction drifting away, and what is the conclusion? They do not have God. I mean, John is not messing around here. He's talking about deceivers and antichrists and people that don't have God because of what they believe or don't. On the other hand, verse 9, those who believe God's word have both the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son are inseparable in the single divine essence, so to embrace the Son in faith, to put your trust in him 
in flesh, dying on the cross to pay the cost of sin and rising from the dead to live again and return someday to establish his eternal kingdom. You believe in that, you have the Father. As John wrote in the gospel, John, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You have the Son, you have the Father. You have the Father, you've embraced the Son. In his first epistle, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So there is so very much at stake here. Confess Jesus Christ in the flesh. Know that here God has shown himself in his love, and here in this place we then enter the life of love through the forgiveness of grace. How were the shepherds changed that history-altering night by what they saw and by what they heard? We cannot know now. I believe we will someday. But as we peer into this same mystery, the question that we need to ask is, how has the incarnation of Christ and God's revealed word changed your life? How has it changed mine? Is the effect there? One who does not know, believe, and trust in God made flesh in Christ, in the coming of the God-man, verse 9 says, does not have God. That is, is not in relationship with Him and is alienated from Him. As we stand, so to speak, peering down at the swaddled baby in the manger, this glorious gift of sacrificial love will unleash in us a life of love for others as we emulate God's love for us if we come to know what God has revealed about that infant child. Embracing this truth, we have then both the Father and the Son, and without it, we have neither. Think of what is at stake. And this, brothers and sisters, is why Eden Baptist Church sings at Christmas. This is why we rejoice in the coming of the promised Messiah and in anticipation of his coming again. This is why we rehearse the old, old story. Without it, you don't have God. Without it, you are separated from him and an object of his just judgment. There is so much at stake. And so we sing in celebration, in rejoicing that this one has come and that we've received him by faith. This is why we carol in our community. Think of the words that were sung in nursing homes here this last week and on doorsteps. The songs of redemption, the songs of the coming of the King of Kings. This is why we invest so much in our Christmas concert to rivet the attention and shine light on what God has done and revealed in the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. To remind ourselves again and again that we might be certain that we have God. This is why families read the scriptures together. Why they rehearse the old story that we know so well. 
why they sing carols of the faith as one generation brings the next to stand at the cradle in wonder and repentant faith. This is indeed why we sing of Emmanuel, God with us, because that indeed he is. Lord Christ, how we give praise to you for the love that led you to this fallen world to provide salvation for sinners. And for those of us who have you, who have come to embrace you as Lord and Savior, we come now rejoicing in the forgiveness of sin in the confidence that we have of eternity in your presence, not because of what we deserve or have done or are doing, but because of what you have done on the cross. Father, we praise you for the eternal,